Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is the 29th of the 10th. It is another wonderful winter day. Michael, how have you been? Wet, Gary. How have you been? Dry. Cold, though. So I suppose it balances out. An umbrella is a wonderful thing. Now we just need someone with bile and we'll have someone of all the four humours. Two types of bile, isn't it? Red and black. Yeah, red and black. You never would have made a medieval medic, Michael. How can you balance the humours? Well, as long as I keep my ching balanced, I'm happy enough. Or is it my chi? I think it's my chi. Hard to tell. So, for today, we have a little bit on wind energy and the problems coming up for winter. There was an event yesterday which wonderfully encapsulates one of the issues that people don't really seem to get a lot of the time, or at least proponents don't tend to mention a lot of the time. There's a really interesting study out of America looking at different university undergrad degrees. I'm sure we've all heard people say that graduates are likely to have higher wages throughout their life. Something like that. I just figured that if you actually broke it down, that statement would start to look a lot more dubious. And this American study has done that. Now, obviously, it's an American study, so you have a a very different field with the cost of their education. But there's a lot of grants and things over there. So for a lot of people, it's not actually as different as we think. Then we have uh, a little bit on a new campaign from Ireland's charities, which is designed to tell you about the fantastic work being done by Irish charities, and which is funded in a manner that when I first saw Michael, I admired the sheer balls of it. Because it's the sort of funding that, you know, if if anyone cared anymore about anything and there were any standards, <laughs> people might dislike, might actually cause some trouble for you. Yeah. And they didn't even try and hide it. So you've got to admire that. But I wanted to start off with just a very, very short mention. For the last couple of episodes, we've been talking about this needle spiking thing. It's now in the Indo, it's now in the Times. There has actually now been a police report in Dublin of it. But in the last episode, I was talking about Regina Doherty broadcasting a claim she couldn't prove. And then I went out and showed that actually there were some issues with the claim and it was subsequently deleted. What I didn't realise is at the time we were either recording it or editing that show, yeah. Fine Gael had come out with a statement on needle spikings from Regina Doherty calling Michael for zero tolerance on this issue. But it's actually, it's quite interestingly written because I think it was written just after, or well, it was certainly written after her and I had a back and forth. But it doesn't say that this is happening in, in Ireland, Michael. It says it's on the rise in the UK and unfortunately is now also being reported by young Irish women on social media. It's not that I'm against the idea of taking a zero tolerance attitude to going up to people in bars and nightclubs and sticking them with a hypodermic syringe and injecting a drug into them, which renders them unconscious and then means that I can take their now comatose bodies back to my lair and then do terrible things to them. You know, I think that's a reasonable position. In fact, it seems to be such an obvious position. Why would you have to have it? Are they going to take a zero tolerance position on murder or cannibalism? We talk in, you know, we've talked before, politicians want that 80-20 issue. And there should be tolerance for stabbing young women with needles to inject them with God knows what. If anything, Michael, I'd say that's at least a 95-5 position. Yeah, if if you could get the details on the 5%, maybe it would be a useful thing for the police to have a chat with them. I think we could solve a lot of this nation's crime. Yeah, I think 
build a very big concrete house and put a lot of those people in there, you might find that a lot of bad stuff might stop happening. So they're taking, anyway, they're taking a zero tolerance position on sticking hypodermic needles in people and injecting them with stupefying drugs. Well, well done for Fine Gael for taking uh, the courageous and controversial position of being against drugging and raping people. I mean, I must say, Michael, I did find her statements a little bit cis-normative. Oh? I mean, she says that much of the messaging surrounding this issue is targeted towards women. However, we need to look at what we are saying to the perpetrators of those crimes, as without speaking to them directly, this problem will only continue for years and generations to come. Now, that seems to indicate, Michael, that men are the perpetrators, which, again, is a horrendously cis-normative thing for the, from the usually very progressive Regina Doherty. Who is Gina? Who is Regina, even, to assume the gender of these people? I mean, we were talking before, Michael, that she's assuming this crime has happened, but apparently now she can't stop herself. She's assuming genders as well. Where will it end, Michael, I ask you? You know, I think that they wanted to respond quickly to an, an evolving situation. And Gary, sometimes when you're doing that, you might be quite as careful in the construction of your language. I think you have to give them a pass on that. What I find more interesting in that statement is the fact that the reason this would go on was because people didn't speak directly to the perpetrators. Do you think that really that's the problem with all the crime, Gary? That you know, people break into houses and steal your stuff. We haven't been telling those people that we don't like that and they should stop. And that's why it keeps going on. Would you like the serious or comedic answer? Is there a... Well, try the serious one and see if I don't laugh. Do you remember a very short while ago, Michael, there was a uh, tragic accident involving uh, a vehicle collision and there was a subsequent funeral and the guards let it be known afterwards that yeah. purely because of that funeral, there was a statistically significant drop in the nation's burglaries. I do. It's, it's certainly in burglaries in, in, in South Leinster anyway. And I just wonder, Michael, are we really to treat seriously anyone who comes out and says, well, the real reason those people engaged in crime was because no one told them, now, lads, that's not on. You might say that, and that would have been my understanding that that was not what was happening. But that doesn't seem to be what the Finnegale presser is saying. It seems to be saying the reason we have to speak directly to these people is because if we don't speak to them, this will just keep going on. I did, I did like, because, again, I just had a conversation with Regina Doherty about, you know, if you promote or broadcast false threats, it is actually harmful because of increased fear and anxiety. And she had seen in front of her eyes the things she had broadcast totally fall apart. And then she okayed a press release that says, has this line, this new insidious, this new insidious trend of needle spiking can be harder to protect yourself from in a busy club or pub. That is the sad reality of life that women have had to be vigilant around their drinks on a night out for many years now. I suppose the obvious answer is that a properly observed social distancing would massively help with this so that people couldn't get close to you without being spotted. You know, if they couldn't invade your space. And then, then she goes on to talk about, you know, she asks, who is talking to young men about consent, about the right to bodily integrity, and the fact that this is just plain wrong? Okay. I'm sorry, Gary, but I can't, <laughs> no, I have to. 
So is what you think <laughs> that there are young men out there whose understanding of consent is that you can go up to people and stick them with a hypodermic solution, inject them with something like a, a rohypnol or whatever the drug happens to be to stupefy them and to take them away. That that's an issue of young men not understanding what consent consists of. That's the problem here. That there are young men who think that that's okay. You see, Gary, I'm my suspicion, and I'll just throw this at you uh, on the fly, is that these are actually, if this is happening, if this is indeed happening, and if it is men that is doing it, that these are actually men who very well understand what consent is. And indeed are men who are consistently failing to get consent to do whatever it is they want to do. And that's why they're sticking needles in people and injecting them. Bodily interrogate, you think, oh, you see, he doesn't understand that this is an attack on my bodily. Ah, sweet, jeez, I mean, who wrote that? I mean, did she write that? Did some poor gob in Philly Gale's press office have to write that? That this is a, a failure of understanding that people, education, Gary, it's only a, if only there was better education. If this was being taught in the, you see, that's it. If this was being taught in the schools, and not just in the secondary, we need to start in primary schools. Along with those lessons for the five-year-olds, which tell them that boys can be girls and girls can be boys, we have to tell them that it's wrong to inject each other, even if they think it's a fun game, with needles and knock them out and do things to their unconscious bodies. Because if they, if that was that, that lack of, that's, that's what's creating these problems. So she, she does talk about education in great length. I'll give you the full paragraph, Michael, just so you can, just so you know what the context is for what she's saying. A lot of the early messaging on this from the HSE seems to be aimed towards women and girls, highlighting the dangers and encouraging them to stay vigilant on night out. That, so far, has been most of the messaging from Regina Doherty as well. However, who is talking to young men about consent, about the right to bodily integrity, about the fact that this is just plain wrong? Now, she goes on to say, Michael, that um, we need to review our state-funded RSE resources and curriculum to ensure it is keeping up with the times in which we live. The only way to break the endemic sexual and gender-based violence in our country is with a comprehensive and new approach to relationship and sexual education. Now, Michael, that's an idea, but let me suggest an alternative. Yeah? Hang them. Hang them. Hmm. I feel that there's a certain percentage of the population that my approach will reach in a way I don't feel an infomercial about the right to bodily integrity will. Now, the thing, Gary, is, I'm, I will straight off say to you, Gary, I would have, shall we say, philosophically grounded uh, problems with the death penalty, which I struggle with. But there is some really interesting research coming out of the United States. And I think out somewhere else, maybe it was Saudi Arabia, which actually looks at the levels of recidivism in people that have been, uh, as the Italians would say, justified by capital punishment. Recidivism rates are astonishingly low. So there is that to it. I mean, it's like theft in Sharia law. You might get a repeat offender, but you very rarely get a third. This is true. I mean, it's a balancing act, really, isn't it, in a democratic society? It's a how much you value the one side against the other. I love that we have reached a point where let's assume Regina Doherty believes this is absolutely happening and young men are going out individually or in roving packs and injecting people with syringes 
so that they can have sexual intercourse with them. And Regina's idea is, well, we need to tell these people, we need to talk to these young men and tell them that this is just plain wrong. Well, and for the sake of clarity, Gary, in, uh, inject them and rape them, not sexually, of course. They would be raping these people. They would be act, these, it would be a series of egregious acts of violence. It reminds me of, every now and then, you, polling will come out in countries. In Ireland, the last while, they started to do it as well. And it will suggest that there is a level of sexual assault and rape in universities that would put the Congo to shame. And they, they, they come out and they release these studies that say these incredible things. And then they'll say, well, what we need to do is set up a committee to review it. And every time I see that, my immediate thought is, the fact that is your solution makes me assume you don't believe the problem is what you're telling me. Do you remember there was a, a survey out of UCD? Yes. And it said so. The, the figures would have suggested there's upwards of 30% of women's students in UCD had been the subject of a serious sexual assault. And the response was they were going to set up a, a committee that was going to broadcast information and inform students and raise awareness. Now, I think I said to you at the time, Gary, if that was actually happening and you were the government, the first thing you do is close down UCD. The second thing is you would never send, nobody in Ireland would send their daughter there. And I think that UCD would have already have developed a kind of a reputation so horrendous that nobody would have ever sent their child to it of any sex. But in the, re the response to this incredible, as you say, was, oh, we're going to set up a committee and we're going to maybe publish some pamphlets, maybe do a video or animation. The recommendations undermine the actual point you're making. Because if you really believe it to be true, why is that what you would suggest? And the same way, if Regina Doherty generally, genuinely believes this is happening, and this is the best she can come up with, the very best, what does that say about her capabilities? Well, it either says something about her capabilities, Gary, or else it says something about her assessment of the Irish public and their capacity to understand an issue and how she needs to speak to them. Uh, one, either or, it's not a good story. Also, zero tolerance, let's talk about consent. That's not zero tolerance. As we said in the last show, that's not going all the way. Written, written, explicit written consent. So you go up to the person and you say, would it be okay if uh, I inject you with this? And then you have to give them, presumably, a notarized breakdown of all of the various drugs I mean, one thing basic, Gary, I mean, basic politeness and health issues, you know, would be to ask the person if they were allergic to any of the things that were in the drug, because it could be dangerous. You know, people could have an, an, an anaphylaxis or, or a, a terribly allergic reaction of another kind. Actually, what this reminds me of, you know, this, the, the notion that you know, there's, the, 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 there's a guy preaching a sermon in a, a, a revival somewhere in, in deepest Louisiana and he's talking about all the terrible, horrible, bestial acts that the men of the area are committing. And they're having, they're lying with the beasts of the fields and they're engaging in Congress with cattle and with sheep and with goats and with dogs and with chickens. And there's a silence. Then at the back, you can hear this voice going, chickens. And I just be—I I would worry that maybe somebody will think this is an interesting idea. 
that's getting so much airplay. Ooh, hypodermics. So, on to a, uh, the energy thing, Michael. Yes. We've been talking about energy for a, a good while, I think, on this podcast. I would say a substantial amount of time. Probably more than we should, to be honest. Well, I don't agree, because I think it's the single biggest subject facing the country today, is the, is the energy crisis, and also the fact that the energy crisis is rooted in the response that the government has taken to the climate change issue. And we're now starting to see, and we're going to start to understand, the practical concrete effects that this is going to have on the people of Ireland, especially the poorer people of Ireland. And I think it's not getting, the actual concretization of these policies isn't getting anything like the coverage it should do. Now, I want to, I want to read you a headline from the Irish Independent, and then a, a, a new head, just a little bit of a fact, Michael. Mm-hmm. So this is the Independent. It's from October the 27th. And the headline is, Irish power supply gets some wind in its sails to ease energy concerns. And the first line is, wind generation supplied almost 64% of Ireland's power needs yesterday, slashing, at least for now, reliance on imported gas and coal. That's the first one. Now, let me read you one from October the 28th, Michael. Okay. This is from the Business Post. Amber alert issued for potential shortage of electricity. Warning cause because wind speeds dropped off a cliff earlier today. (laughs) We've been talking about energy for a while. And one of the points I think we've tried to make, hopefully we've made well, is that the issue with renewables, particularly wind and well, solar, but this is Ireland, so who gives a shit, is not what they can produce at peak. It's the variance in the system. Some power supplies, let's say... You get your good days, you get your bad days, but primarily they're just days. Wind energy is incredibly variable. And the problem with that is, as more and more of the grid becomes things like wind, you need to build backup capacity that when you need it can step forward and fill any gaps that wind leaves. Yeah. But the more and more of the grid you give over to these things that have a high variability, the swingier everything becomes. Because if wind is 10% of your grid, and it basically doesn't, you know, there's no wind for a day, mm. you can offload that to other things. If wind is 65% of your grid, you start running into some big problems. And so people keep coming out and being like, oh, th- today we did this amount with wind, and today we did this amount with wind, and there was this level of generation. And the question becomes, can you maintain that level, and was it at a useful time? Yeah, I, I just... Just to speak to that, they, they, we, we, can, we can trade headlines. In the article in The Independent, it said, wind generation supplied almost 64% of Ireland's power needs yesterday. Because uh, it was windy, Gary. 64%, right? Now, and you're talking about one, you know, one day. This is a headline from this year, but from July. Ireland's wind generation, energy generation, plummets during heat wave. Ireland's electricity production from wind has plummeted due to settled weather. You know, that settled weather, it's just awful. Over the last two weeks, not one day, and this, I can't remember how much longer that settled weather went on, but it was quite a decent July. The network of 57 weather stations, average wind speed struggled to average above five kilometres per hour. In that period, 
over the past week at, that they were talking about, the average figure for the production of electricity from wind energy hit 64% the other day, was 12%, according to figures from AirGrid. And also remembering, Gary, that, I, I don't know if this is the case, that sometimes it'll, it'll happen because you have to bring other sources of electricity on online when there isn't wind, and because you have different peaks and troughs of generation, and because you don't know when it's going to be windy, so maybe it's calm, 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 and then it gets windy between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock at night. Now, it may be, depending on how you're doing the figures, it may be that for the total amount of electricity generated in Ireland over that period, that the wind will turn up showing 15% of the energy generated. But it may be that of the percentage of, of electricity that was actually consumed because it was produced at a useful time when people were trying to use electricity, that the actual proportion of of that electricity that was consumed, that was generated by wind, may have even been significantly smaller. But anyway, point is, two weeks of good weather, not two months of a heat wave, but two weeks of good weather in July meant that the wind, the total generation, electricity generated by wind, went down to 12%. That doesn't seem like that that really is going to cut the mustard as a way of keeping the lights on in a country. Without a backup, I'm not saying that wind hasn't its role or place or whatever, but there are issues. And it doesn't seem, as you said, Gary, we haven't seemed to grapple fully yet with the notion that you're talking about parallel systems here. Which increase the cost, because you've got to keep things running at a certain level so that they can ramp up quickly when needed. Because you might be surprised by this, Michael, but it turns out sometimes the wind just does things. <laughs> really? It's, I mean, it's shocking, Michael, but the wind can apparently be surprising even to professional meteorologists and people whose profession it is to study these things. Almost like it's incredibly complex and can be difficult to understand. There's a line in the Independent article which is almost as if it was somebody was trying for a little, a little bit of a joke, where it said, With wind unpredictable, however, Europe's wholesale gas prices remain near record highs. Wind unpredictable. <laughs> really? Yeah. It also goes into a document which I will link below this podcast. It's put out every year. It's usually not a terribly interesting document. It's put out by AirGrid, and it's called the Winter Outlook. So this year's is the Winter Outlook 2021 to 2022. And it is basically just AirGrid talking about what the winter is going to be like. Mm -hmm. The problem with this year's one is that there is a thing called uh, Lowell, loss of load expectancy. Sorry, loss of load expectation. And that has a safety threshold, Michael, which is set by the regulator. Yes. And basically, it is the expectation that you will have power issues, that the generation available will be insufficient to match demand, and therefore the supply will be, shall we say, Michael, uh, potentially intermittent. Or this document, which again is produced by AirGrid, predicts that even under some of the best scenarios available to us, we will enter the winter at twice the safety level put forward by the regulator. Oh. That doesn't seem good. Actually, we'll be more than twice over it. But if that's this twice the level allowed by the regulator, then why isn't the regulator saying that they 
have to do something or making them do something. What what exactly are they going to do, Michael? Well, they could open up some power plants that they closed, perhaps, I don't know, off the top of my head, without replacing them with any other capacity. I know it's a wild and woolly idea, but how about that? How about uh, building some other non-unpredictable sources of wind of generation for maybe for for next year or the year after i will put this document below so people can look at it uh, and go through it that's not a guarantee that there will be power outages that there will be any issue and i think generally we've been talking about this michael we've been careful to not never say there will be power outages this is all a matter of probability and where they can scale things up what we can say is we're not in a great position but i thought i'd give you just one quote from it matt uh, Michael, the, so it's talking about when it's most likely that there will be a issue with capacity. And it says this, November and early March are expected to be the most onerous periods. Now, Michael, I don't know if you recall the date of this show, but it's the 29th of October. So we are about to go right into what AirGrid expects to be the worst period of the year. So what we're hoping for is a lot of very windy weather. And that would probably mean, if you're talking November, December, January, you're going to get very. It's going to be very, very wet and very windy. So we're basically, we're praying for a miserable, a miserable winter. That's the hope. It's the problem, Michael, is if it's a miserable winter, there'll be more lights and things on. There'll be more heating. Yeah, no, and obviously we want it miserable, but not too miserable, because from the experience of the Germans, I remember that they had a problem if the, if the wind blows too fast. They have to turn the turbines off. And we want it miserable, but not too cold, because if it gets too cold, that can interfere with the turbines as well. So you want it miserable, but not too miserable. We want strong winds, maybe like um, gale force, but not storm force. Can I just throw in something here? This is a very small point. It's not very exciting, but I think it makes the point in a very practical way of what's happening here. I, I, well, I'll ask you first, maybe maybe you're up to date on these things. How much would you expect to pay for a bale of brickets, board and owner brickets, in, uh, if you're, you went to your local garage? I actually have no idea. I can't remember the last time I bought a bale of brickets. I'm more of a lumber man, Michael. There, yeah, I, 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 I guarantee you there will be illicit falling of trees happening around this country this winter. Yeah, no, of course, you'd want to give it a year or, or, or two in a nice dry shed to make it really suitable for burning. But at the end of the day, if you've nothing to burn, people will even burn wet wood. Anyway, I saw a bale of brickets on a, in a forecourt recently. Bordnemona brickets, not the lignite brickets that we're importing now from Germany, but the Bordnemona ones, for six fifty. Now, last year, around a year or maybe some time ago, I was paying around four or four twenty five for a bale of brickets. So I say it went from four to six, Gary. That's a fifty percent increase. And brickets that's when you're historically was when your basic fuels for an awful lot of people whose whose heating was a stove or a range or a fireplace in a front room to keep their to keep themselves warm. Fifty percent increase in a bed of brickets. Now, if you're living in a very nice house where you have underfloor heating and you've got your heat pumps and everything's running off the electricity, you, and you don't have you don't have a fireplace, you don't have a chimney for God's sake, these kinds of things won't bother you. 
But I can tell you there are a lot of people out there for whom the price going up 50% on a bale of briquettes is going to cause very real hardship. So I just wanted to say that. No, I think that's fair. So that is the current energy situation. It is hopefully not going to go to the wall. It's just not looking terribly good at the minute. But you can't say these things for certainty other than that probably could have been handled a little bit better. Or as the joke says, you know, how do you get to Killarney? Well, if I was you, I wouldn't have started here. Exactly. Sadly, that is a joke that has so many applications in Irish policy that it is going to tire itself out very, very quickly. So I was talking there about a charity pulling a move that I could only admire for its sheer ballsiness. And this is a new campaign called We Act. You may have seen it in the news. It's getting a good bit of good press, which I'm unsurprised about because it appears that every charity in Ireland, bar the EBI, is a member of this thing. And what it is, is it is a campaign group dedicated to improving the public perception of charitable groups. Now, you might say, well, what's so ballsy about that? There have been a series of scandals involving the charity industry. Maybe they need to improve their image. And, a, you know, a common group is not the worst idea for that. And the ballsy thing is how they're paying for it. Because, Michael, this is an Irish charitable initiative. They're damn well not going to fundraise for it themselves. Now, I'm going to start by saying the Irish government's logo is next to the other organisations that are funding it. But nowhere do they say they're getting money directly from the Irish government. It's just, its logo is with the other funders, but it's not mentioned anywhere. So maybe they're not funding, maybe they just threw it in. RTE does a comic drive. I believe it's called RTE Does Comic Relief. Comic Relief being a massive charitable enterprise, very popular in the UK particularly. Yes. And RTE ran it in order to get uh, cash for hard-pressed Irish charities. So people donated, and RTE was going to give the money they raised to a group called the Community Foundation for Ireland. The government came in and said that they would match donations up to a value of, I think, €3 million. Euro, and that's what it was for. Members of the public donated millions of euro and companies and everyone. I think the, the actual value of it was about €5 million euro in the end to give money to charities. This initiative has been funded from that. And Michael, I have an immediate wonder if the people, when they were looking at RTE Does Comic Relief and being told they should give money for all of these good purposes and for these charitable activities, mm -hmm. if they realized that if they donated their money might go to a PR exercise for the charity sector, that to me seems ethically questionable. I think it's a tremendous act of chutzpah. I think it's a bit, it, it's a, a charitable organization whose purpose is to tell nice stories about people doing stuff in charities. I, what I kind of find is interesting is say if you go about, you go to the bottom where the realtus neheran symbol appears on the website. All these various groups, this has been brought to, to tell us about all these groups, right? But then you have these groups like you have DOCHUS, which is the Irish Association of Non-Governmental Development Organisations. So that's an organisation covering lots of groups. 
you have uh, the Charities Institute Ireland, so that's groups. You have the Wheel, um, which is what's it? Uh, Ireland's National Association of Community and Voluntary Organisations, Charities and Social Enterprises. Why did we need another? Well, you see, Michael, this isn't a charity. This is a campaign. It's a campaign being backed by, apparently, the number of charities involved is difficult to determine. I've heard mentions as high as 60 and 100. You say it's not a charity. You said, sorry to interrupt you. You say it's not a charity. But it is described on its Facebook page as charity organisation. And then at the bottom, it says about... Um, you've got your website, your send message, your your email, and charitable organisation. Now, I think that somebody who was just scanning and wanted to see if this was a charitable organisation or not, uh, as in uh, this was a charity or not, and saw that it was a charitable organisation, might be led to believe that it was a charity. I'm sure if you make that point to them, they will treat it with the attention and concern that they believe it deserves. I am absolutely sure that they would. So... You have this steering group of six charities. You have, let's say, over a thousand charities involved at some level or linked in. Probably, you know, they rang around and asked, would you put your name on a list if we need one? And people went, sure, everyone looks good. You are, if they have that many charities involved, you are looking at millions, if not tens of millions of euro in state funding going into these organizations. As you mentioned, Michael, you have organizations involved with this, like The Wheel. The wheel says part of the work they do as a charity, and they receive 1.78 million a year in public funding. 76% of their total funding to do this is build public support for the charitable sector. Now, that to me seems like something the wheel could do off their own back, Michael. Particularly given that I would suspect a lot of the reason that this is needed right now is because there have been so many scandals involving financial irregularities at charities that it's impacted on donations. And the solution to that is to take money that was fundraised for, with the idea it go to providing charitable services, and use it as a fucking PR front for your sector. I know what you mean. And there is part of me, by the way, Gary, which is thinking, are we coming across as we're basically the guys who are now saying that we don't like charity? And we don't like charitable organisations. And we don't like people that are doing stuff with charities. I, I mean, are we the guys who have now decided to kick kittens? I mean, is this really going to make us that much more popular? Michael, if we were looking to increase our popularity, let me tell you, yet again, if I was looking for that, I wouldn't have started from here. But I don't think that... Ulti- well, it may be because they have problems with donations and stuff. And I'm sure that that is probably true for a lot of small, individual, uh, local charities. They rely principally, at, at the beginning, on raising money through local events and race nights and raffles and races and sponsored walks and things. But I don't think it's really about donations. My suspicion would be rather it's a way of maybe generating positive sentiment towards the sector to give cover so they can go to the government to get more money from the government. Because really, most charities in Ireland, that's where the money comes from. Outside of... There are some large charities that get their money out, still are maybe principally funded by private patrons. I'd say Vincent de Paul still gets a large amount of its money directly from private patrons because you have the Vincent de Paul collections outside churches. Now, as fewer and fewer people go to churches, but the Vincent, it's a very strong brand. It gets a lot of... well. It, a certain amount of bequests 
it's a strong presence in local communities. It's a it's a group that people will think of, and you know, maybe large donors. But an awful lot of charities in Ireland, Gary. Would you say that there's the big ones, the big hefty ones that we hear are getting most of their money from people on the street, or from, or directly or indirectly from government? There are some charities in Ireland that do raise substantial amounts through donations. Very very few of them and as we've previously talked about Michael there are groups like the ICCL that say they're entirely free of government funding and that is true on a very very technical level but uh, they've very clearly gone against the spirit in some of the funding they've accepted and look I'm sure RTE and the Community Foundation for Ireland which was the group that got the money the 5.8 million from RTE Does Comic Relief, will say that, well, look, we said we were going to spend this on, uh, you know, providing charitable services and just generally raising money for, you know, a hard-pressed charitable sector. And this is an important part of that, promoting our work. And they have a point. I just think if you're going to ask the public for donations and you're going to spend part of it in a campaign to make yourself look good, you should probably clarify that before. Yeah. Particularly if you're going to do it when involved with several groups who seem to have this within their wheelhouse and already receive millions of euro in government funding. Yeah, to do really important work like have an online communications workshop discussing the principles, assessing the inclusivity of your communications and offering best practice you can use every day to ensure your content is diverse and inclusive. I will say they don't say how much money the Community Foundation for Ireland gave them. And the Community Foundation for Ireland received 5.8 million, again, from RTE Does Comic Relief. But when you look at the list of um, groups that the Community Foundation for Ireland was giving money to, and how they say that when considering grants from that 5.8 million, they prioritised vulnerable people and groups. And you look at some of the money they gave, and really, really good things. Just... Loads of things. Everything from major campaigns to a program for therapeutic horse riding for children with disabilities to improve their sensory skills. Well, that's actually a regal program. Yeah. So stuff like that. And then you look at that. That program, they gave €2,925 to that program, Michael. How much do you think they spent on We Act? And do you not think that maybe if you wanted to improve the image of the charitable sector in Ireland... You should show people that the money they donate goes to charitable acts, which are meritorious and which improve the country. Hmm, yeah. Anyway, I'd like to go on the record and say that I think that people involved in charity are great, and I like kittens too, and I don't think you should be nasty to either of them. I, I, I think we should take a zero a zero tolerance approach to people who are nasty to kittens. Just want that on the record. You know, Michael, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm taking too hard line a stance. And maybe, you know, it's not sort of kind of impressive that they would do this. There's a lot of interesting things happening here that if somebody was to have a good old, good old look at it, it would be fascinating. But it, it just seems like a chutzpah, really. I mean, but it is, in a sense, it's just a kind of a postmodern thing, isn't it? It's always the meta story. It's the, the story about the story. It's the communication about the communication. We don't exist unless we're, we tell people we exist. I, I, I mean, I... I saw this thing yesterday or the day before. I was reading through it, you know, about it, just trying to get a sense of it. I assumed it was your general Irish charity thing. And then I see that, you know, they're funded by 
the Community Foundation for Ireland. And then RTE does comic relief. And they don't hide it. They're actually, like, they're immediately upfront with it. And I looked at it and I was like, I think that's a problem. But it was so openly put out that I had to immediately think, maybe it's just me. Maybe the children are right and I'm wrong. But no, no, I, I think I'm right here. I think, no, I, I don't think that's what you should do. So we've gone through Doherty, we've gone through We Act, we've gone through the Power Grid. So we have, I believe the last thing we said we'd do, Michael, was the American study on degrees. Oh yeah, we have a quick a quick look at that. Then. A perambulation. Now, this is a new report, I'll put a link to it below, called Is College Worth It? A Comprehensive Return on Investment Analysis. And this is from a group called the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Freeop says it's nonpartisan. From reading their material, I get the sense they're more on the right than they are on the left. Yeah. But they particularly focus on things that will impact on those who have an income or wealth below the US median. So even if they are a right-wing think tank, they're focused on improving the lives of those who are maybe not on the verge of poverty, but less well-off than on average. Right. So, of course, they have an interest in education. And it makes a lot of sense they would have an interest in American education, and particularly this question, because this is going to be an important financial decision. This report, in fact, says that it's not where you go to college that's the most important decision you make. It's what major you study. And the question of what major you study may be the most important financial decision that you make in your life. So teenagers, Michael, obviously perfectly capable of making those decisions. So the way they do this is a purely economic analysis on a return. Basically, they look at it as a return on investment. If you look at the amount of money you will make from doing a particular degree, you take away the cost of doing the degree, the cost of uh, just being in education and the lost income for the time you're in work. What works out here? Now, they say the median bachelor's degree in America has a net return of investment of $306,000. And what that means is over your working life, you would expect on average to earn an additional $306,000. Because you have a degree. Because you have a degree. But then they say some degrees are worth millions of dollars and others, Michael, have no net financial value at all. Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, some of them are obvious. But I was quite surprised when it said some fields of studies uh, that can produce returns of a million dollars or more. And they go engineering. Okay. Computer science. Okay. Economics. Yeah. Okay. Nursing. I would suspect what's happening there is people are going through nursing to get to other things or very particular career paths. And that's pulling the averages. And they make that point for some of the biomedical sciences. They say that the results are a bit odd. Because they think people are going through biomedical science to then go to med school. Uh huh. Okay. And then some people are going to med school, they're earning massive amounts. And if you don't do that, it turns out that the degree actually isn't worth that much. But I think just before we go into this and before we go into the, the points of it, it is a common refrain from universities in Ireland globally that the mere act of graduating from the university, regardless of the gr- degree you do, will enable you to get higher wages. Basically what they say about critical thinking, that if you come to university, you'll increase your level of critical thinking. Yeah, studies on that, not so rosy. It's also kind of mendacious because they know that the averages are going to be massively tweaked one way or the other from the top and the bottom of your earning potential, depending on the degree you take. But that's the thing. There is a massive degree of variance. And international finance 
kind of hold up a lot of the underwater basket weaving people? It's like, for example, uh, when I was an undergraduate, I did my I, I took a degree in philosophy. Now, naturally, that's going to launch me into the top half a percentile of earners. And we know that, it, you know, the people in the very tip top of the tax bracket, it's dominated by people in finance, computer engineering and philosophy degrees. And it's a philosophy people are paying the taxes that are keeping the society going. Well, you know, if you'd taken a degree in something useless like physics or maths or law, it would be very different because you know, that'll drag you down. So I'd recommend anybody out there who was a child looking at doing a degree in philosophy. Oh, my God, it's a great choice. There is a value in education for education's sake in areas you are passionate about. That is very different to going to a university to study something. There is a value in going to a university to study certain things because you have programs and they're structured and you'll learn things that you might not if you were doing something autodidactic. But I have noticed there is a conflation of education universities and a presentation of degrees in a way that I think a teenager would hear what's being said about certain degrees and then pick them on the assumption there is a financial reward at the end of it that I would very much suspect is non-existent or in fact maybe actively harmful if your pursuit is getting a, um, a certain income and stuff like this is incredibly important for two reasons one social mobility Telling people from poorer backgrounds that programs that they might be interested in are going to improve their living standards and doing so dishonestly is grotesque. So, sorry, but sorry, go on. I just want to observe and maybe, maybe I'm anticipating you here. Is uh, there, in all of the discussion around this and this that we have consistently heard that going to university and getting a degree is going to make you a much more attractive prospect in the market. I think another negative effect on that, which is simply not true, is it has produced a situation here where, for a start, I think we now have this thing where everybody's becoming a university. The idea, and place, places are doing degrees in subjects where, frankly, we, we don't need more places doing degrees in that subject. We have too many people in university. We have, we overvalue, we overvalorize in our society, the idea of a third level education, or not a third level education necessarily, but a, a university style academic third level education. We overvalorize it and therefore as a consequence, I think we undervalorize certain kinds of vocational education or you know the apprentice system. If you go to Germany, and I know this is a, it's a tedious point, people are probably sick of hearing it, but the German system of vocational educational and apprenticeships and going into 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 proper training whether it's in car mechanics or uh, welding or building trades or whatever kind it is ha produces well it it produced germany i mean the germans the last people seem are hanging around who actually make things they make them well and they they sell them at a pretty decent price across the world and people go oh that's made in germany that must be good and they have and you say we even here and not even here if you're a plumber or an electrician or a plaster or a block layer or a carpenter or a cabinet maker or a, a, a welder or a car mechanic these are all really important difficult jobs which also by the way you can earn a very good living at, and if you happen to be good at it, and you have a reasonable personality, you can make a very good living indeed at it. And they may even be things that you enjoy doing. 
And I suspect, Gary, that if you're a if you're a good electrician and you're good at business and you're good at dealing with clients, you're going to earn consistently I would, I, across the board more than somebody with a, with a third class degree in sociology. Not to pick on sociology is a cliche, but there you go. No, no. I, I, I mean, just, just quickly, Michael. The, the second point I was talking about there is that when you poll uh, teenagers about why they want to go to college, massive, absolutely massive amounts of them say that they want to go to college to get a good job. And if you were a university and you were telling people, "Oh well, I mean, our history degree, fantastic career prospects, none of that petro engineering for you," you are actively betting against your students. And I would suspect, like, I am unaware of any research on this in Ireland or any data from which research could be drawn. And I would suspect an amount of that is because they don't want to produce the research. Because once you've produced it, you know. Whereas now you can just say, well, of course there will be a benefit. Strongly suspect in some case there aren't. I'm not saying you shouldn't do history. I think history is a great thing to do. No, I mean, I'm considering doing a part-time master's at the minute. In history, I already have a master's, but... I thought I might go back and do a history one. I don't expect there to be any career benefit from it. It's because I really like the study of history, and I thought I'd like to go back and do it more formally and more properly. I would think, I still think that if you're an 18-year-old, that there should be some kind of an honest assessment of what the hell it is, just simply the fact that you have a history degree. I, okay, if you want to be a history teacher, well, then you're going to need a history degree. If you want to go into journalism and you think that you're going to go maybe do a degree in, in, in history and then do a postgrad in journalism, although frankly, I believe that the apprentice system in journalism produced better journalists than the idea of professionalizing journalism in the universities. But again, that's, uh, that's a rabbit that got into Australia and there's no point in lamenting that. But if you're just thinking, well, I'll get a degree in history because I like history and then I'll, I'll, get a, I'll get a job in something. That's kind of dishonest because it's unless you, again you're going to be a historian. If you want to be a historian, well then start off by getting yourself a degree in history. Yeah, and if you want to do that, if you want to be a historian, talk to some academics and have them describe to you how it was getting tenure. Gary, not not even tenure. Getting a job from one year to the next. Tenure is a, 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 for a lot of them. You're talking a lot of the people. I know I have a number of friends in, in that business in history. And it's a question of getting for a, a contract year to next year. That, if they can get that, they're happy. And I see you fall into a small little group, tenure is. For all that there are too many students, there are too many people going to university to get jobs that they don't need degrees for. The level of surplus academics is incredible. I get, I, I, I don't want to, to harp on about this, but I, did, I, I get, I think that there is an issue as well, as regards working in trade, of valorization. I think there's a real problem now with an attitude, and you could call it like, in some kind of old fashioned way, like snobbery or patronizing or whatever, regarding one thing as being better than the other. But we really have to reevaluate how we valorize these things. Because I'll tell you, by, it may not, Gary, be as difficult as once it was to get the name, to get the letters BA after your name. It is not any great stamp that you are a person of the academy and the elite from the clerk class. There's so many people out there now. It's, it, it, it means increasingly less and less, unless you are doing specific courses in specific colleges that carry certain kinds of status. 
and or you get a certain kind of degree. Increasingly, the demand is that people expect if you're going to really move forward in these things, the expectation is that you get a, you're going to you're going to need a first. I would like to see a situation in which the universities were required by law to publish listings of the employment rate and the salary range of graduates of their programmes at 5, 10, 15, and eventually so on, Michael, yearly intervals to the greatest extent possible. Do you know, here's the thing, I would like, nothing really to do with this, but I'll say it anyway, because I'm curmudgeon. As you know, Gary, the notion of free university for everyone was introduced by the Labour Party in what I regarded at the time as one of the single biggest acts of wealth transfer from poor people to middle class and rich people that had happened in the history of the state. I looked at the figures back at the time for schools in the district in Kimmage and um, I think was, I think I looked at Kalini or Fox Rock. 12% of children from the schools in the Kimmage area went on to third level uh, or to universities. 97%, I think, of the, of the children in, the, in the, the, the district in South London I looked at went on. So the children, the parents of the, the hardworking parents of these children in Kimmage, their taxes were being used to subsidise the university education of people living in Fox Rock. I would be very curious because this is all done on the basis of expanding education in order to produce this great to increase diversity, uh, proportionate, right? I'd be very curious to see the kind of massive strides forward that have taken place in diversity in the leading universities in Ireland. Because what they, it seemed to me at the time, if you really wanted to do that, you'd leave the fees alone, but you know, which, by the way, also created horrible problems for the way we structure, the way we fund universities in Ireland, because we, we had these ghost fees developing on the side, registration fees and so forth. Mm. But rather, if you wanted to do that, you improve the quality of second and third, first, primary and second ed education in deprived areas, and then you give proper and substantial uh, sustenance, uh, subsistence grants to children from lower income families to make it not just theoretically possible, but actually possible to go to university. But anyway. So on, on to some of the, the actual results of this study and how they did it. The methodology was this. They looked at about 30,000 bachelor degrees in, I think, 1,700 uh, colleges. And they were able to get a new database from the American Department of Education that allowed them to track these things. And so they worked out what is the return of investment here? Because again, their focus is on taking people from below the medium level of income and getting them to be richer. Yeah. Very, very interesting for them. They say, and obviously this is America, so it's going to be very different here because America has much higher costs of university, but far more American students will receive grant packages or things like that that mean they will pay either drastically reduced registration fees or no registration fees. Something that's not mentioned here so much is the, a massive difference in America is whether or not you attend an in-state or out-of-state school. If you attend... Uh, a, a school within your own state, which is part of the public university system, then actual the 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 funding, the the bursaries and the grants available mean that that kind of university education can be very affordable for ordinary people in the United States. It's also worth 
pointing out that this is, doesn't mean you're going to low quality places. Universities like Ohio State uh, would, for example, would be, I think it's in the top 50 universities in the world. The American university system at that level, state level, state, state universities are very high quality institutions. And some of them in, you know, in the flyover states, they're not, you know, I'm not necessarily even talking about California or New York, but in Iowa, Indiana, well, Indiana is Notre Dame, but they are ordinary, North Dakota, they will have seriously quality, uh, uh programs and faculties in lot in these, in these universities. So it's not quite, you know, like 70,000 a year to do uh, French literature in Harvard, which, you know, you could pay. Yeah, an interesting point about the report is it points out that uh, several of the Ivy League courses also have negative returns on investment. But I suppose the headline figure of it is this. When you look at the cost of the university degrees, then you take in the risk that a student will take longer than four years to finish college, or they'll drop out entirely. And you add the underlying costs associated with education, so places to stay, food, non-working, all of that. They say the share of programs which either have no net financial gain or actively hurt you is 37%. 37%? If you're a student and you've been told all of these courses are going to lead you to higher uh, levels of wealth, particularly if you come from, let's say, lower income groups that don't have a history with university education, or maybe didn't receive guidance as to there are degrees which are simply from a financial perspective, miles ahead of it. And you believe that spiel? You have a one in three chance of picking something that hurts you. And I mean, if you compare that, Michael, to what you could have gotten, if you'd gone for something that was actually performing, it's even larger. That's fairly stark. It's not great. And I, as I said, I'd like to see the results in Ireland from it. And they would be less stark because we don't have the uh, the American system. But as you said, lots of American colleges are actually much cheaper than people think. There are actually relatively few American students who end up with the sort of ridiculous figures on student loans that we hear about in Ireland. There's lots of lower cost, good alternatives. But I think you'd still see a difference. I think you would see you know, certain majors pulling up majors that are actively harmful to students' financial well-being. And if the colleges want and universities wanted to give students this information, they would have been perfectly able to generate it, and they haven't. So they either haven't thought about it, or they've willfully decided to limit the information uh, incoming students have on a decision which is going to be incredibly impactful for the rest of their life. It'll be really interesting to see a contextualised chart as well. So leaving aside, the, shall we say, the, what are, we know are going to be the, the, the big performers, petrochemical engineering, computer engineering, business and finance, law, I suspect, probably pretty decent, but sort of the, the middle performers. I put those in a chart of against uh, guys and gals who did the full, you know, the, the, the full and proper... Uh, apprenticeship courses in a series of trades and look at their income and one of the things for a start we, those 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 guys are going to be earning almost immediately in their apprenticeship but then look at them after five years and ten years at where where they are because that's the other thing i mean they may start off more quickly but maybe they plateau and they don't go up and maybe other guys have a longer term possibility but i think it'd be really a really useful chart to be able to compare just a series of degrees across the board 
both from vocational and, and, and non-vocational sectors. And it would, it would be a very useful tool for people who, who, who may be going to university simply because, as you say, Gary, they think this is the way that I'm going to get a better job. It may not be really what I want to do. It may not be what I'm passionate about or that I enjoy. But if I want a job, this is what I want to do. And I think this sort of information is incredibly useful, even to students who have a passion. Like they want to study history because they want to become a historian or they want to become something in particular because it enables them to look at it and go, okay, I'm passionate about this. But if I do this, this is what it's going to cost me. And you can make that choice or you can make a different choice if you're not willing to make that trade-off. But at least you know and you know what you're paying for something. Um, And of course, you, you can say that, you know, there are going to be courses that have no financial benefit that students are very happy they did and that they feel improves their quality of life. But at the same time, you should know that. You should know this is not going to help you financially. I remember many years ago, 10 years ago now, being at dinner with a a young friend of mine and a couple of whom I'd known for years and years. The young friend of mine was pursuing it, just starting a career in accounting and was saying he really wasn't very passionate about it and he didn't like it. and he, Oh, it's tedious and boring. And one of my other friends, an accountant, had been an accountant, still is an accountant, at that stage for oh, getting on 20-odd years more, actually, I say. And he laughed and he said, you think I'm passionate about being an accountant? You think I get my joy from being an accountant? No, what I get from being an accountant is a really good salary, which gives me a lifestyle. And that's what I want. I have a job. And that job gets me abroad five times a year, and that gets me this house, and it gets me that I can eat out in those places and I can drink this wine. But no, I'm basically, son, would you cop yourself on? Passionate. But that's a choice you make. And maybe some people can't do that, can't live a life where they're doing it. But, you know, it would be useful to be able to know that starting off. So you can think about whether or not that is the choice you want to make. I mean, I was actually, I was surprised... In America, the benefit of having a bachelor's degree, according to this report, you will earn 67% more than people who only have a high school degree. Right. But then they point out that, well, there's some bachelor's degrees programs that will immediately give you pay that's two to 300% what a high school graduate earns. Other programs will give you barely above the high school level. And the people who started working immediately after high school are going to have... What, four to six years on you? Also, Gary, do you not get the feeling, and this is purely anecdota, not any, not any, not data, but my sense of just looking at the people that I know over the last 10 or 15 years, but certainly the last, within the last 10 years, that it's a little bit, again, that the ladders, the ladders are getting longer in a sense that increasingly a, a, a BA is not enough in Ireland. I don't, I'm not talking about the States. Increasingly, when you meet people, say, only a BA is enough. More and more, there's there's a people are working. This you have to do the masters, whatever it is you're doing, you have to get a masters. Yeah, but the problem that they're I think they're running into there is that from talking to people in business, graduates know basically nothing. Right. Yeah. Just as a general rule of thumb. Okay. Like you want people who are capable of being trained, basically, and businesses are using it as a sorting mechanism, and because the mechanism is available, and there are so many people in it. It makes sense to use it just to weed out the very weakest candidates. But as a question of whether or not it's actually improving things, 
I would say substantially, probably not. Actually, I remember one of the times I was talking to Jimmy Sheehan about the state of Irish medicine. He was arguing that he thought the fact that medicine had become this incredibly high point status symbol, you know, you get 600 points, well, do medicine. You have to do medicine. Had actively harmed the medical profession because what he argued was that it was getting people to go into medicine who were very smart and absolute crap in dealing with human beings and just could not deal warmly with another person to save their lives. Very analytically smart. But his argument was, you need a certain level of intelligence to do different fields. But it doesn't need to be this thing held only for those who can study the hardest and get the maximum because they're not the people who are going to make the best doctors. Well, I just, I'd imagine it's a field where you want a certain number of the super duper hyper brainy guys, but maybe you don't need only those. I mean, you need you need people in research in medicine. You need, there may be parts of medicine that are of modern medicine that are so highly technical and devolved and difficult. You need, but yeah, put it this way: we all know people who were good, who are good doctors, who became doctors thirty years ago when you could become a, you know, say six Bs might get you into the College of Surgeons if you had a leg in. Now, and there are there are certainly places in the world today that are running, have medical schools where people can get in with results far below anything which is required in Ireland. And the, I, I, like the, the Italians, I don't, I don't know anymore, but they used to have an open number. If you want to do medicine, you just turned up and did medicine. I remember saying to somebody, but how can you guarantee quality? He said, well, it's very simple. That's why you have exams in medical school. They can pass the medical school exams and pass the professional exams. Then they're competent. It's not about the exam you passed when you were 17. It's the exam you passed when you're 35, which is the practical test of whether or not you're a competent person to be a doctor. And that seemed like a reasonable thing. I, I, I thought it was a particularly interesting point at that point, coming from Jimmy Sheehan, because of Jimmy Sheehan's involvement with things like the Blackrock Clinic and very high-level private medical facilities. Because mm-hmm. I know people who work in those facilities, and they are very very good at what they do. But it was interesting to see that the person who had oversight of many of those things wasn't looking for people who had managed to achieve the highest scores, just because he didn't think they were the best people. I I imagine being a doctor involves a a set of skills rather than one type of skill, surely. To be a really good doctor, you want to have a, a number of different capacities, some of which are going to be intellectual but some are going to be communicative emotional empathetic the only the, the major advantage i see to medicine being so high status in ireland is that every year we get to see exactly how many people are best and brightest kill <laughs> uh, because medical negligence you would be shocked at the numbers uh, well i'm shocked i'll tell you what i do know i i i, I well in and around, oh God, late 90s. I mean, it had already got to the stage by the late 90s that medicine was, you know, impossible points. And I knew over the space of three years, two two girls and a fellow who got the points to do medicine. And there was this automatic reaction. Well, you're doing medicine. You must be doing medicine. And, well, yeah, I'm doing medicine because I got 600 points. And, all, and the three of them within two years had dropped out. One went off into the degree in music. One went to America, and I don't know whatever happened to him. The other went, did a degree in French and history and was very happy. They didn't want to be doctors. They had no interest in being doctors. They had no interest in medicine. But they got the point, so they had to do it. 
I think that's what you might call a misallocation of resources, Michael. That is malinvestment of human capital. Anyway. anyway I think that is, that is us. I will put a full link to the um, to the study in this. You can go through it, see what majors give what. Uh, they link the full data set in it as well, if you're really interested in it. I don't think you will be terribly surprised at what does well and what does badly. I was, there was one stat on psychology, Michael, that was actually, did actually kind of surprise me. It was this, 1% of psychology programs will yield earnings above 80,000 per year by the time their graduates are age 35. Really? And this is in America, and, and people in Europe do not understand how much wealthier people are in America. America is, to make money, just an incredible place. 1% of psychology programs yield earnings above 80,000 per year by 35. That is not a good bar in, our, in America. But that's people with a, a BA in psych. Presumably to practice as a psychotherapist, you'd want to, presumably it's a requirement, I don't know, if, or, if not a master's or a doctorate. There's the thing, Michael, they were measuring undergrads, but a lot of the people who did those undergrads would then go on to do postgrads. If you have a PhD, you have to have a BA. Yeah. So that's what they were measuring. Would you like to guess, just before we leave, Michael, what the highest performing undergrad is in America? And I'll give you the figure. The The average return on investment for this course over a student's life is 4.4 million. Well, I'm going to guess with the, 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 the standard. Petrochemical engineering. No. Is it engineering of some kind? Eh, not really. Kind of. Okay, I'll have one more go. It's not really engineering, but it's sort of kind of connected. Um, mining, geology, tech. Computer science at Caltech. Ah, yeah, oh yeah. Well, computer science, Caltech also helps, Gary. That's the equivalent of getting the points to do medicine. If you're getting into Caltech. I think Caltech may, in one of the global... You know, there's a number of them, but in the last... A little while in one of the global rankings may have come out number one university in the world. I know that it it it, it had historically if I may, I might be off the wall on this, it had historically been been behind MIT as a technical university, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, but that laterally Caltech had uh, caught up. Anyway, you you have to be seriously seriously clever to get to Caltech. Yeah, it specialises in the sciences and it is very, very good at what it does. Anyway, if you haven't all gone to Caltech in the interim period, we'll be back on Sunday. All the best.